This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Hi, I'm Imma. I live in Scotland. Hi, I'm Jen and I'm from Canada. Hi, I'm Ola Banji and I'm from Nigeria. Hello, I'm Liki and I live in Paris. Hey, I'm Rod. I'm from Peru. Welcome to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. In our conversations, we share ideas, perspectives, questions, and things we can actually do to make a difference. So don't be shy and join our Carbon Sessions because it's not too late. Hi, I'm Jen. Hi, I'm Liki. And my name is Rob Copeman Haynes. Hi, Rob. We're glad you're here with us today, and we really wanted to uh, bring you in to uh, the Carbon Sessions to talk about a few things, to talk about your amazing yard, because I've had a little tour of it, not this year, but last year, I think we were wandering through the front and backyard, but also to talk about why that's important for you to, to grow food in your own place, and maybe some of the other things that you want to share with our audience. Mm. Thank you. And uh, as Jen has mentioned, I live in Paris. I don't know if you've ever been to Paris, but I live really at the center of the city and I have no balcony space, but I would love to do a little bit of gardening, start growing some food. And so maybe you could give me some tips as well. <laughs> cool. Sure. Yeah. It's all good. I think uh, whatever connects us, wherever we are, whatever environment, the more connected we can feel to the natural processes of the earth, the better we're able to 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 feel resilient and know what's going on, have have some sense of what's happening. How did you get started, Rob? How did it start for you? Or why did it start? <laughs> why did it start? Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd probably have to start with like my personality. That's the part of me that actually I call Mr. Houston, who's, who's a bit into control. Like, oh, it came to me from a dream. Um, <laughs> you know, Houston being the ground control. <laughs> so I, there's been a stage in my life where I really wanted to control things and needed immediately to respond to things. And through a series of events, I suppose, almost by accident, I end up taking a permaculture design course and using those principles and techniques. That's how I ended up with a front yard that's very different than my neighbors say. Can you describe it a little bit? Sure. It's a journey that's at least 20 years from even that film, um, Inconvenient Truth. I remember going to that with a friend at the time, and, and he came home talking about how it's good to know about this because uh, then we know what light bulbs we should buy and stuff like that. And already I was thinking then, you know, I don't think this is about light bulbs. <laughs> And so I've been on this journey since then. I don't think it's about gardens now either, uh, although it might help in, in the long run. Um, so so what, your, what was your question about the garden? Or? I just wonder if you could describe it a little for us, because it's very different from your neighbors, you're saying. And if you could yeah. describe it a little bit and then tell us what you think it's about now. Cool. Um, yeah, I, what my garden does, I think, is the most interesting thing compared to the monocrop of grass that my neighbors mow weekly with their um, fossil-fueled lawnmowers and then send away to the, to the green compost of our uh, municipal system. 
I have multiple different harvests, which include, you know, the uninvited and the invited guests of pollinators and all the work that they do in pollinating the pear and apple trees and the raspberries and the currant bushes and the strawberries um, and more. And there's, there's garlic. There's all kinds of stuff there. Potatoes. We just had a potato feast for my daughter's birthday a couple of days ago. It was completely unplanned because we moved some soil around and there were some little bits of potato that we hadn't collected out from a, a purposeful harvest another time. And there they grew up, but there was, there was this total gift of, that was the most delicious part of the meal. But we all concurred with that. Um, so I set that up in a really, really small space. We're at the end of a cul-de-sac in a triangular lot. So the front yard is, is really small. Like it would take me no more than about 10 minutes to mow it every day if it was just flat grass. But it has such a diverse production in it from the strawberries that begin in the spring to the apples that I finally harvest in the fall. And I really almost have to do nothing in it other than pull some weeds out and go out there and harvest. Um, so the, those principles work that I learned in permaculture, and anybody can learn those. It's not even that expensive to do it. So, so can you explain a little bit, because I'm very green in agriculture and gardening, and so can you explain a little bit what permaculture is? So what's the principles of permaculture? Yeah, the best definition I heard about permaculture recently, just from a good friend maybe six months ago, after trying to describe it in lots of different ways, is, is this. Um, it's a system of inquiry into relationships. A system of inquiry into relationships. So on lots of different levels, um, you know, and the, the primary relationship that in, in permaculture studies you'd look at is, is how does a forest work? What are the relationships that happen in a forest that make it self-sustaining? And then that little branch of that that I'm, you know, I'm stuck into because I grew up in suburbs and I live in a suburb now is, is how can suburbs transform, be transformed, hopefully, or potentially into more self-sustaining um, organisms. And then, so depending on the teacher that you go to, uh, permaculture, there's 12 or 14 principles that have kind of been distilled over the years. Uh, but there's all kinds of associated techniques such as deep mulching and um, diverse plantings, like I said. So my garden has many different stories in it, like a forest does. It's got mushroom layers potentially underneath the soil and um, then the ground covers and then the small bushes. In my case, that's the current bushes and then a full-grown tree. So that, And eventually that tree will, um, the pear tree in the center will kind of be the dominant thing. But when I first planted it, I also planted squash, and many of them are also um, just volunteer. So I'm letting my yard move from immature to a mature ecosystem. And depending on its interaction with all the animals and creatures around there, not trying to control like that like we do in um, industrial agriculture or totalitarian agriculture, as it's been called. Too. So it's in that way, I become uh, an inhabitant of my suburb, not just someone who lives here, you know, or I'm both contributing and drawing from that garden, contributing to the, the diversity in the area. I feel really connected to the neighborhood in lots of different ways. 
I was just listening to a podcast yesterday, and there was a fellow on it who's written a book called Just, I think it's something, I think his website is Just Grow It, but I'm not sure what the name of the book is. But he has taken step by step, done a study between the benefits of a home garden and then uh, industrial uh, growing of food. And he said there had never been a full-on study, step-by-step-by-step, point-by-point-by-point. And it came out that you can produce far more food, far more efficiently, far kinder to the planet in a home garden than you can in an industrial setting, which for some of us sounds right, makes sense. But he said people didn't believe that you could be more efficient and effective uh, with a few hand tools in your yard than you could be with a giant tractor in a field growing for many people. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it was an interesting conversation because he was talking about all the hidden costs that there are in industrial agriculture that aren't translated to the consumer um, and that we don't hear about. So, yeah, interesting. I have a, actually, I have lots of questions, but uh, one of them is I understand that you don't, you're not really gardening. You're not trying to control the, the, um, the environment, the growing environment. So how can you, how can you get different layers of the store? How the layers in the food forest, do they grow naturally? And how long does it take to get the different layers for the nature to become, um, yeah, to build the, the forest to be built? Right. So I, I did set it up, but um, I'm glad to use the word control because I. Okay. Control is what's inherent in kind of our Western way of seeing the world. Um, I do, however, manage it in some way. Yeah. So that's a very different approach. It's not that I don't pull out things that I don't really want there. Uh, but I rarely um, take out all of them. Like fennel, for instance, is is kind of volunteered in the garden from who knows mm-hmm. what. In one year, I just kind of let it go, and they'll become you know six feet tall, huge. And the, the great benefit of them is they're a great pollinator. They attract mm-hmm. little bees and stuff. And so I know that I'm feeding the neighborhood's insects when I do that. On the other hand. When I distributed some compost, I realized all those fennel seeds are in the compost, and I didn't get the compost quite hot enough so that the seeds were killed. And then those seeds are naturally spread around too, so I'm pulling out fennel everywhere. So there's a fine balance between uh, just letting things happen and tweaking a bit. Does that begin to answer your your question? Yeah, Uh, except harvesting. Do you do any work? Like I look at my neighbors. Um, they're out there <laughs> working with their lawnmower, ostensibly working, right? But the, the, the thing that's really doing the work is the stored sunlight in the form of fossil energies from millions of years ago. And all they're doing is walking behind their lawnmower. Mm. But I'm pretty sure they all, uh, even to the ones who really care about what their yard looks like and, and take pride in that, they all, I would think that they're thinking they're doing work. <laughs> Because it has to be done at a certain point and to maintain the kind of look that they need to because of a social story that we have about what yards need to be. Um, they view that as work. Um, whereas I'm out there harvesting. My, I'm doing something productive that, that benefits me, that keeps the yard going, that that has benefited other creatures. So when I, I'm sure it, it's work, but it's not the tedious labor that is is sometimes described as the 
the property of subsistence agriculture. When I'm doing something that's meaningful and joyful and, and productive for me, like that, that creates breakfast, like this morning we went, well, yesterday we went and picked a bunch of strawberries and, you know, <laughs> it's like I'm out there in the garden doing yoga, essentially. Uh, bending over and, and treating my body well and treating the yard well. When we can find ways of, of being holistically in the world um, that may or may not, you know, quote unquote, save the world, we're, we're better positioned to um, respond to what's going on. And, and maybe in a time of food insecurity and changing climate and stuff, it, it might help a little bit. But in you know, really 15 to 20 years of me beginning this whole process and more radically in the six or seven last years, I haven't seen any of my neighbors take serious steps towards mimicking me with the exception of a couple of teenagers who, now teenagers who I met when they were four and eight respectively, um, with whom I have great relationships and come over and help me in the garden. Um, you know, that's kind of a disappointing thing and I realized just how much we need to get at the stories that are there and social norms. If we're to make true what uh, the Carbon Albanac, Seth Godin are saying, that it's not too late, we need to be doing more than just building gardens in our front yard. But if that's a foundation for you feeling connected to nature and as part of the earth that you are, then that's a good first step. But everybody's first step it could be different. How's that for an, for an expanding <laughs> of the field of conversation? I was just going to say, you said your story is a little bit different, or you're focused on a different story now. Do you want to share anything about that? Oh, that I mean, what I'm I'm really interested in is is what is the story that we're currently enacting? Um, that's a phrase that uh, Daniel Quinn uses in his book. Um, I don't know if he actually uses it. Yeah, he does in his book uh, Ishmael. You know, the story we're enacting is one of separation from nature, that we can control nature, that we're kind of the pinnacle um, crop of of mammals, if you will, and it's up to us to control and do everything, which is which is both full of hubris and too much responsibility. So I'm I'm interested in a story and how to tell that story and have people hear it that helps us feel like um, we're part of an unfolding story and we don't know really how it ends except that it ends in goodness somehow, even when there's tragedy and and terribly difficult stuff that we will yet have to face. Um, What's the inner emotional work we need to do and what's the public grieving we need to do? It seems really important to me. Hmm. Thank you. When I hear you talking, I realize that there's a lot of um, emotions. Um, when you talk about your garden, your yard, what I hear is emotions, positive emotions, but sometimes some sad emotions, but overall it's very positive emotions. Hmm. It's very different. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it, it's a good corrective to uh, all the tremendous uh, sorrow that is is there for sure, um, and and the grief that we need to acknowledge publicly. I think I think really that's the the key thing we need to do to help people move into 
productive responses is um, find ways of of grieving together, of saying uh, what we've been doing doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. But let's find joyful ways forward, and let's let's do those joyful ways, even if actually we can't depend on them actually working now, because it may it may, in my opinion, actually be too late. Um, mm-hmm. So we have to find a, a way to be grounded in in joy and grief, in in love and sorrow. At the same time, this um, person I was listening—I wish I could remember his name. This person I was listening to um, spoke a little bit about that. He said, um, "I mean, he wasn't talking about the bigger topic. He was just talking about, um, you know, people people being outside, connecting with the earth, growing things." And he said, "You can't do it." with the vision of it being work. It needs to be done in joy. And he said those words. And I thought, oh, because he said it needs to be uh, about connection. And and he says it, it doesn't work if you don't do it. <laughs> he says it doesn't work if you do it with the idea that you have to do this like a job. It needs to be done with a different framework or a different state. And mm-hmm. um I found that interesting because I hadn't heard anybody talking about that before, and now it's come up twice. So <laughs> I, I'm listening. I'm listening. <laughs> and and I'm learning. I'm I'm just wondering how I can use or understand these kind of emotions um, in my little uh, patch, you know, the edge of my window in Paris. Because I cannot <laughs> try to build a forest on my, you know, on this on on my window, and um, <laughs> uh, because it would take up too much space, then <laughs> <laughs> I won't be able to see the sunlight anymore. <laughs> um, if you remember the permaculture, just to kind of bring us around to the beginning, one one definition that I think the most concise I've heard so far is is a system of inquiry into relationships. So if you see yourself in your apartment, whatever, mm. whatever floor you're on, as related uh, to the people who live below you and above you and all the people in your building and all the people in your city, of course, and not to mention, well, no, let's mention <laughs> all of the creatures that are affected by that city, uh, near and far, the ones that live within <sighs> it. Um, <laughs> mm. You know, you might be able to take some small step that uh, that begins to um, just embody that connection for you and to make it more visible because that's that's the truth is we're all completely connected to everything that's happening whether we're aware of it or not the, the climate mm-hmm. our energy systems the soil health in distant places as you make those connections visible then more possibilities will arise i should Forget about you know, all the tips on like how to grow uh, food, but m- focus more on energy and how to transfer energy yeah, sure. and emotions. Yeah, that's and interconnected. Well, it's one yeah. of the first, I think, universally accepted principles of permaculture is observe and interact. Hmm. So you know you need to gather enough information about your actual situation. Uh, that includes about your own resources, um, both in terms of personal energy and money and 
all that stuff and, and the resources around you, the potential resources around you that could, you know, you could list those for a day or a week or whatever. And that might include everything from the compost and the garbage that your building is throwing out to um, things on the street to park across the road to neighbors you've met and those you haven't met, the strata council or however that's organized, um, relationships they do have, the ones that have potential, the one that don't. Um, you know, that principle of observe and interact invites you into a journey that's uh, of discovery and joy right there. You can call it work or you can call it uh, whatever you call it, it, it's going to be pretty exciting. And sometimes it will be work and sometimes it'll be a joyful discovery. Um, but, but uh, yeah. uh, Bill Mollison, one of the founders of permaculture was, was fond of saying, um, once you begin, you'll know how to continue. So um, you kind of trust the journey hmm. of doing that. Cause there, there's so much to learn about, like the, the whole predicament that we're in. And there's so much to learn about the possible responses. And so, uh, which includes podcasts and things. And, you know, maybe one or two other people, hopefully will will gain a little something from this. And it's an honor to, to have a chance to speak and be heard from me. Um, but yeah, Liki, I would just hope that you, you feel like, oh, you don't have a huge responsibility right now to save everything, but you can just take on that kind of beginner's mind and go out into your neighborhood and in your building and, and just see what is happening. And then then some idea might come to you about well, how could I interact? I'm observing and interacting. Even observing is a way of interacting. It's always affecting something that's scientifically proven now, right? There is no objective observer. <laughs> um, and, and that will give you one tiny mm. thing that I might you might do. And uh yeah, then you go on this learning adventure and trust that it all ends in goodness somehow. So there's our uh, there's our invitation. I think <laughs> there's our <Yeah>. invitation <laughs> to uh, to enter into the journey. Um, yeah, and just begin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but and yeah. be patient as well. Yeah. yeah, patient with ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Good. Well, thank you so much, Rob, for uh, joining us on this on this podcast. Really appreciate your wisdom and uh, and your thoughts. My pleasure. Thanks. It's it's a great opportunity to kind of summarize what do I think and what is important. <laughs> You've been listening to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. We'd love you to join the Carbon Sessions so you too can share your perspectives from wherever you are. This is a great way for our community to learn from your ideas and experiences, connect, and take action. If you want to add your voice to the conversation, go to thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcasts and sign up to be part of a future episode. This podcast is also part of the Carbon Almanac Network. For more information, to sign up for the emails, to join the movement, and to order your copy of The Carbon Almanac, go to thecarbonalmanac.org. Be sure to subscribe and join us here again as together we can change the world.